Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word this morning. We thank you for the centrality of the cross. And we thank you, Father, that it is only by your Holy Spirit can we respond to Jesus' death on the cross. And so we do pray this morning that your Spirit be working amongst us, convicting us and helping us to see what the death of Jesus really means. Amen. Well, I think uh, it should be perfectly evident this morning what the theme of our service is. The songs and the readings have explicitly told us that it is the cross of Jesus. Now, of course, crosses is something that we are very familiar with in our society today. We see them every day, don't we? Many churches have them on the top of their steeples. Um, Many people wear them as uh, pieces of jewellery, whether that be an earring, a necklace, or even a tattoo. Um, Of course, there's nothing wrong with symbols, but we can become over-familiar with them, and it can desensitise us to what it actually stands for. For some, the cross is an icon designed for worship. They kneel before the cross and pray to it. Some see the cross as an amulet that contains supernatural power, and so they hang it over their beds or carry it around to ward off evil. But of course, the cross is and should be the centre of Christianity. The cross is not a trinket to be worn without thought. It's not an amulet to be used to ease our superstitions. It's not an idol to be worshipped. It's a symbol of God's love for us. And so this morning's sermon is all about the cross, the essential part of the plan of God for the salvation of mankind, to bring mankind back into that relationship with God. And we've already been looking, we're in this series, if you are a a guest or a visitor or a newcomer, we are in a series in Mark's Gospel. You might think a bit strange in the middle of the summer to be dealing with this subject which some people think is just Easter time. Well, we're here because we're in Mark's Gospel and we've been seeing how man's plans are very different to the plans of God. A man's plans had included this plan of the chief priests who had taken Jesus to Pilate that early on that Friday morning because it was only the Roman officials who could condemn a person to death in their society. Now Pilate, that Roman official, realising that Jesus in fact was innocent, tried to offer in exchange for Jesus Barabbas, a man who was guilty of murder. He was insurrectionist. He was trying to oppose the Romans. But the chief priest stirred up that crowd to refuse that offer. So Pilate, in his weakness and in his desire to pacify the crowds and the Jewish leaders, agrees and has Jesus flogged and then handed over to be crucified leading to Jesus being mocked, struck and spat upon by the soldiers. 
And so this morning, what I want us to consider is two very different attitudes towards the cross and the crucifixion of Jesus, and two very different results of it. And then ask ourselves the question, how are we responding to this situation? Maybe it's the first time we've ever heard about it, or maybe it's an opportunity for us to renew our response to the cross of Jesus this morning. We're seeing man's plans at work here, and we're seeing God's plans in this chapter. Remember, Jesus had been accused and had been found guilty of blasphemy. A man's plan was to get rid of Jesus because they were jealous of him. They saw him as a threat to their power base. They refused to accept that Jesus was God's son. And they understood, the chief priests understood, that the only way of getting rid of Jesus was by having him killed, and they need the Romans to do that. Now, if you look at this passage we've got in front of us this morning, you'll see that Mark, in fact, goes into very little detail concerning the actual suffering and physical agony of Jesus on the cross. And I would like to suggest to you, if this had been recorded in our age, like the things that we've been hearing about recently in our newspapers or on our news teams on television, cameras, there would have been a lot more detail, including the suffering, the blood and the gore, and what Jesus was actually suffering. But Mark only gives us 18 verses to the whole event. It's all rather matter of fact, if you look at verses 24 through to 37. So what's Mark doing here? Well, the emphasis of Mark's account, rather than on the physical suffering, seems to be concentrating upon the different views and attitudes towards the cross and the death of Jesus within his account. That is, the attitudes of man and the attitudes of Jesus himself. So what was the attitudes then of man to this event? Well, firstly, we see the soldiers, don't we? And they appeared, this was their daily work, they were fairly indifferent to it, they offer him a drink, they then crucify him, then they sit down and cast lots to see who could have Jesus' clothes. This was one of the few perks of that particular job. We also see, of course, in man's actions here, the opposition and mockery of Jesus' leaders. Look at verse 31. And the mockery of the crowds who are witnessing the event. So that's man's attitude, if you like. What about Jesus' attitude? Well, that was completely different, wasn't it? Jesus' attitude was complete submission to God's plan of salvation. And so what I want to concentrate upon is looking in a little bit more detail at these two different viewpoints and then what was the results of them. So, the chief priests and religious leaders, the opponents of Jesus, how do they see it? Well, within the crucifixion, they see it as a proof of Jesus' failure. They had rejected his claims and his teaching. And therefore, they saw the cross as the ultimate proof of his failure. Look at verses 29 to 32. Now, isn't this a very human characteristic? When people are wrong, we like to quote their, work, their words back at them, especially if they're famous and fallen leaders. 
I guess we will in years to come. If the claims of the Brexit people, for instance, don't come true, their words will be thrown back at them. All the more so with the religious leaders. When they fall from grace, people quote back at them their teaching. It's something that we all like to do. And the same applies here. The people in verse 29 and the religious leaders in verse 31. Look what it says in verse uh, 31. It says, In the same way the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. The religious leaders had no intention of seeing and believing. They knew he would hang there and die. The crowd and the religious leaders were enjoying themselves. They were seeing the proof of Jesus' failure and that he wasn't living up to his claims and his teaching. And we also, don't we, love to see when the stars fall, when the great men in trouble, the high and mighty, are fallen. We love to see when the big fish fail. When whales jump out of the sea and fall back into the sea, they make a great big splash. And in this time and place in Mark's Gospel, there was no bigger fish in the water than Jesus, who had healed people, cast out demons, changed people, challenged people, especially those that had considered themselves holy and righteous. Well, now he had fallen. He was disgraced by being crucified on that cross. Well, we read in chapter 14, verses 63 to 64, that he had been found guilty of blasphemy and treachery, but now he couldn't save himself, and so they mocked him. And the cross throughout history and today remains a stumbling block to many that leads to mockery and rejection. The Apostle Paul found the same when he was on his missionary journeys. He writes that the cross is offensive to some people. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. Paul calls it a stumbling block. Now this word comes from the Greek word scandalon, which means a trap or a snare. It came to mean something that trips up a person and causes them to fall. We get the English word scandal from this word. And to the Jews, the cross was a scandal. They could not conceive of the Messiah being nailed to a cross. They literally stumbled over the cross. The cross is foolishness to some people. Paul tells us that the Greeks considered the cross to be foolishness. This word comes from the Greek word moriah, which gives us the English word moron. The sophisticated Greeks looked at a saviour dying on a cross and they declared it to be moronic foolishness. And today, even some religious people still think the same. It's a stumbling block and they don't share in the New Testament teaching concerning it that the price of our sin was paid by Jesus on that cross. Also, ordinary people reject the idea that one man's death on the cross can take the punishment for all our sins and that we can have a relationship with God because of Jesus' death on that cross. In a world that believes in power, power of politics, military power, power of wealth and education, fame and fortune, 
that world won't concede that the cross offers us the solution to mankind's needs. Getting right with God through Jesus' death on the cross is foolishness to many and proof that Jesus failed in his ministry and life. So that's the viewpoint then of the opponents of Jesus, the religious holy people and the crowd. What about the view of Jesus himself who was hanging on the cross? Well, it's not the view of failure. It's rather the view of prophecy fulfilled. Look at verse 34. The only words of Jesus that Mark records here We know that Jesus spoke other things which are recorded in the other Gospels, but Mark chooses only these to record. He repeats them and adds the translation, so they must be really important. The crowd misunderstand these words, thinking he's calling Elijah. But Jesus knew what he meant, because he's quoting Psalm 22, verse 1. And he may even have been quoting the rest of the psalm, we don't know. Because that Psalm 22, amazingly, tells us of a crucifixion, even hundreds of years before crucifixion was invented. So do take the chance when you go home this weekend to read that that Psalm 22, because it talks of the cross. It talks of being scorned by man, being mocked and insulted, men shaking their heads, letting the Lord rescue him. It talks of the bones being all out of joint, my tongue sticking to the roof of my mouth, people staring at, they divide my garments and cast my lots for clothing, all referring to this barbaric form of punishment. The details as given in this remarkable psalm are the details that Mark includes in his account of the crucifixion. Jesus seems to be saying, I am fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies. And of course, we've also got Isaiah 53, which speaks of the suffering servant. God's people are saved by the suffering servant. Three times, Jesus has taught his followers that the Son of Man must suffer at the hands of the chief priests, giving his life as a ransom for many. We saw it in Gethsemane, if you remember, a couple of weeks ago, when Jesus was praying in anguish to his father, but then he submitted to his father's will. So the cross wasn't the proof that Jesus had failed, but rather the centre of God's plan for salvation for all. The Apostle speaks of this when he, Apostle Paul speaks of this when he states that God's plan had included this before the creation of the world. This is what the Bible proclaims, this great story of God's plan of salvation for mankind. And Jesus' death on the cross is right there in the centre of that plan. Jesus wasn't defeated on the cross. Jesus hadn't failed. No, he was submitting to God and fulfilling God's plan. But you might well ask yourself, why then did Jesus cry out in this manner from the cross? It's a message, isn't it? This one sentence, a message that contains despair, but also triumph. Because it's a cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus felt forsaken and was forsaken by God, not because he was separated from God by his sinful actions as we are, but rather because he was taking our sin on his body 
as a punishment for us, which led him to be separated from God because of the effects of sin. But it's also a triumphant cry, because he could say, my God, my God, my God was central to this plan. And he knew at the end of Psalm 22 that it speaks of the great deliverance that God would bring to his people, and that he was involved in this. The suffering was essential. And if you like, the chief priests almost get it right when they say he saved others, but he cannot save himself. For he did save others, he does save others. But he could have saved himself, but by doing so, he would not have been out to save others. And so then we have these two very different attitudes towards the cross and the death of Jesus. But what are the results of this death of Jesus on the cross? Well, we've got two results from this, I think we can see in this passage. Firstly, we see that the barrier between God and man has been removed. Look at verse 38. Verse 38 talks about this curtain in the temple being torn in two from top to bottom. Now, uh, when I looked this up, I found that in fact there were two two curtains in the temple. There was an outer curtain that separated the Jews from the Gentiles. And there was an inner curtain which separated the Jews from the Holy of Holies. That was the place where only God was believed to dwell. And because of this, it was only approachable by the high priest once a year when he sacrificed animals on behalf of the nation's sins. Now, both of these curtains had the purpose of separation of people. There is some disagreement by the commentators and the theologians as to which of these curtains the verse actually refers to. One view is that this is a symbolic picture that there is now no need for sacrificial action of the priests because Jesus has become that sacrifice for us. Jesus removes the barrier between men and women and the presence of God. Yes, there is still a barrier between us and God, and that barrier is our sinful action. God is holy and cannot mix in with wrong actions. Uh, But the only way around this is the sacrifice that Jesus made for God, for our sins. And we need to accept it. We need to confess our sin and our need and believe that Jesus' death on the cross did this for us. God made this possible by his plan of the death of Jesus. We cannot remove the barrier. Only God can do this to the voluntary action of Jesus dying on the cross. So then the first result then of the cross is the removal of the barrier between God and us and the action of sin. The second result of the death of Jesus on the cross is that we see who Jesus truly is. If you remember, Mark has written his gospel to proclaim who Jesus is. And in this episode of the crucifixion, the truth is grasped. Look at verse 39. The centurion, a hard Roman soldier who'd probably worshipped many gods and seen many crucifixions, stated, truly, this man is the Son of God. He had seen the way that Jesus had died. Now, for us, of course, crucifixion is something that we've got no experience of whatsoever. 
But for them, they would have seen crucifixions. And with most crucifixions, there were screams of rage, pain, wild curses, and shouts of indescribable despair by the unfortunate victims. Well, the writers of the four Gospels show none of this. Only at about 3 p.m. do they record that Jesus cried out in a loud voice with those words from Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Mark puts these words here so that we understand who Jesus is. When we see that Jesus on the cross and what he has done, we can say with the centurion, truly this man is the Son of God. And this has been Mark's purpose right from the beginning of his writing. If you remember, in chapter 1, verse 1, he starts his gospel of the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark, chapter 1, verse 11, God said to the people, this is my beloved Son, at his baptism and at his transfiguration. And so we too, this morning, can grasp and hold on to this truth. Who is Jesus? He is the Son of God who died for us on that cross. The cross was not a failure, but rather it was the centre point of God's plan of salvation. The proof of who Jesus is, the Son of God. So there we have it. That's the situation. That's what Mark is recording But what is our response going to be to the cross of Jesus this morning? The soldiers were ignorant. They sat at the foot of the cross playing dice, not knowing what we know. We could join the crowd and mock Jesus on the cross. And in fact, if Jesus isn't the Christ, isn't the Messiah, then perhaps that's the correct and reasonable response. Or we can receive Jesus' death as the price for our wrongdoing, our sins that separate us from a holy and righteous God. Now, of course, this is a personal choice. It's an individual response to the crucifixion of Jesus. We can either ignore it or we can respond to it. if If this is the first time we've heard of this, we can respond in a positive way to it. Or if we've heard this message many times before, we can renew our submission and our commitment to following Jesus as he took up that journey that led to the cross. It's not an easy action. It's not an easy life. Jesus didn't preach an easy life for his followers. No, he said, take up your cross and follow me. And so I offer all of us this morning a challenge. Will we accept the death of Jesus on that cross as a sacrifice for our wrongdoing that deserves death and separation from God? Well, remember, Jesus offers us here the chance of eternal life, not because we deserve it, not because anything that we can do, but because he died on that cross to take our sins away. Amen.